Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at epiphanyligonier.org. Today's message is our Easter Sunday message, and this note goes out to anyone who has been following this podcast at any pace since we started it back in March of 2020. Although our COVID separation has kept us apart, please know we continue to pray for you with joy and fondness, and we hope to be with you again in person very soon. Alleluia, Christ is risen on behalf of our congregation. Have a happy and safe Easter Sunday. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just a few weeks ago, at the end of March, Gallup, which is a polls or analytics company, you've probably heard of them, published their annual report on church membership in the United States. Since this poll was started, About 80 years ago now, this last year, 2020, was the first time this number, church membership, dropped below 50% of the population, down to 47%. So 47% of Americans say that they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. This is down from 50% just two years ago in 2018, and down from 70% in 1999. As staggering as some of those statistics can appear, I would guess that not many of us are surprised. I imagine that we could all provide examples, some probably very personal, of people and loved ones we know who have left the faith. You don't, and if you don't have a personal example, time would not permit me to cover the countless examples of Christian authors, musicians, pastors, etc., who have left the faith. While I don't know his whole background, I hear these similar tones of doubt in a singer-songwriter I really liked named Stephen Fure in his song entitled Signs. In this song, he says, In my doubt lies a piece of a memory. It hides, but it comes out to whisper and tell me that I just might still believe it all. I know it seems that I don't know what to do. My mother wishes I... She wishes I could believe. I wish that I could too. Everyone around me is seeing signs, but I know better. I'll close my eyes. In today's gospel reading, we encounter a disciple of Christ named Thomas. Now, where we pick up this story, some of the disciples have already seen an empty tomb, and Jesus has already appeared to Mary Magdalene, alive, in the flesh, 
risen from the dead. Now the disciples are meeting. They are gathered at the assembly, confused, anxious, scared. It is here that Jesus comes and stands among them, saying, Peace be with you. He breathes on them and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. Here's the catch, though. Thomas is not there to see this for himself. And when the disciples later tell him what they have seen, he does not believe it. I feel as though if Thomas were a modern-day singer-songwriter, these lyrics would be something he would write. Everyone around me is seeing signs, but I know better. Thomas thinks that he does know better and states that unless he sees the risen Christ himself, unless he can thrust his hand into the marks of the nails and of his side, he will not believe. Now, unfortunately, I think how this text is often preached goes something like this. Thomas was reprimanded by Jesus for wanting evidence. He should have just believed. So, we too should not demand evidence or bring forth our questions. We should simply have faith and just believe. I would argue that this is a wrong interpretation of what is happening here. While the scriptures insist that we must have true and genuine faith in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, it does not demand from us blind faith, as if faith were this leap into the dark. Actually, the opposite seems to be true. The New Testament writers seem to think that people would demand evidence for their claims, that those coming to this claim that Christ has been raised from the dead would come with a healthy skepticism. As N.T. Wright likes to say, the discovery that dead people stayed dead was not first made by the philosophers of the Enlightenment. The ancient world was just as skeptical as we are that someone dead would come back to life. Therefore, all of the gospel accounts contribute to the argument for the validity of Christ as Messiah from historical events and eyewitnesses, their testimony. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke writes, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Luke not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but also the book of Acts. And they are often referred together as like a two-volume set, Luke, Acts. In the beginning of Acts, he states, In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke is trying to produce a coherent and accurate account so that we might know the truth and ultimately so that we would believe. The apostle Paul as well exhorts the people in Corinth to remember the validity of Christ's resurrection he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that, For I delivered to you as of first importance 
what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. What Paul is saying is that this claim of Christ's bodily resurrection and appearance to these people are actually central to the Christian faith. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are the cornerstones of faith, but so are these testimonies. Christ appeared not as an angel or a ghost or spirit, but in his recognizable body. A body glorified, though, a body somehow more substantial than what we know and experience now in our own bodies. A body not less, but more. Paul later states, later in this chapter of 1 Corinthians, that if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Apostle Paul is arguing that our hope in Christ is deeply rooted and intrinsically connected to his bodily resurrection. And so we have all of these testimonies of this fact that were carefully gathered, carefully written down. Thus, we're not being asked to believe in spite of little to no evidence. We are not as Christians called to be credulous or too eager or too ready to believe things. In other words, gullible. We're actually being called to portion our belief in accordance to the evidence. Evidence, the New Testament writers are carefully documenting. We are called to conduct a thorough investigation, not just once, but continually. Questions of doubt are an important process in both coming to faith, but also in sustaining that faith. Even as Christians, we must go over this evidence regularly. This is one of the reasons we recite the creeds, both in morning and evening prayer offices, and the Apostles' Creed, with the Apostles' Creed, but also weekly as we gather together as an assembly, participating in the Eucharist and reciting the Nicene Creed. We recite these not as cute stories or fables, but as actual events. For as actual events, we believe that they are the hinge of all of history. So in light of this, I think it would be wrong to say that Thomas is a story of Christians needing to be gullible. There's something else going on here. John begins this account by showing the disciples meeting together. They're sort of hiding out of fear, but they are still meeting. Jesus appears to them at this time. But John also points out later in verse 24 that Thomas was not with them. When Thomas does finally come the following week, Jesus indeed appears before them again. And while Jesus does give Thomas a gentle rebuke, the rebuke is not that he wants evidence. Our translations don't help us much here to see that. Really, what Jesus is saying to Thomas is stop being an unbeliever or stop being faithless. Be a believer. Be faithful. This word apistos, the word that's translated unbeliever here or, or faithless, 
It was used by Jesus in various places in the Gospels to describe the crowds and Jewish authorities who refused to believe in him and his ministry. So what happened with Thomas in this account is that he had stopped listening to Jesus. Jesus had told all of the disciples multiple times that he must suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. But even in spite of this, the Gospels are clear that the disciples did not understand at the time what Jesus meant. So when Jesus was finally arrested and crucified, all of them were dismayed. They were terrified. They didn't understand what was going on. They were scared of the Jewish authorities, so they met behind a locked door. But even still, they continued to meet. They continued to gather together in spite of all their confusion, of all their doubts, to worship, just as they always had. But Thomas is not among them. He is absent. This is not an insignificant detail for John. John refers to him here as one of the twelve. And this phrase only occurs one other time in this gospel, in reference to Judas Iscariot. The point here is that although Thomas was one of the twelve, he is not with the others as they met. Judas is not there either, but for other reasons. Thomas had dropped out. This is John's way of telling us that Thomas had despaired and stopped believing. The questions he has, unlike the other disciples, are not coming from a place of sincere inquiry, but rather from a place of cynicism and a hardening of the heart. He is not honestly seeking. He is actually certain that he knows what the truth is, that Jesus is dead and he is not coming back. Thomas's reply to the, to the disciples when they tell him what they have seen, that Jesus is risen, that he has appeared to them, his reply to this is not out of healthy skepticism, but rather a brushing off and dismissal. It is the non-acceptance of someone who is hurt, of someone who has had all of their hopes erased. He thought that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, but that man died on a cross for all to see, and Thomas's hope died with him. Our age could be categorized by the sentiment Thomas is holding here. Author and theologian Jamie Smith says that for many in our age, invincible doubt has become, in a sense, the new faith. That truth cannot be known for for certain is the only certainty. In an interview about his most recent book about St. Augustine, Smith says, while you want to give room for your doubts, I think the danger is swinging to an almost mirror of fundamentalism, where doubts become the thing we are most certain about. As he goes on to say, while we should have compassion for people who have experienced trauma and brokenness and thus are doubting, we must be careful not to fetishize our doubts, not to treat our doubts as certainties. So although we may have doubts, we must be careful not to wall off our hearts against any and all persuasion. We must remain open to the possibility of encounter. We must remain open to the possibility that our doubts are not as certain as they appear. This movement from hard-heartedness to openness is what the story of Thomas is really highlighting. Thomas has left the assembly, but the testimony of the disciples, the testimony that he brushes off, 
I think begins to work on him, begins to open his heart as he sits and wrestles with it for a week. We know this because the following week, the disciples are meeting again, gathering together again for worship. And who shows up but Thomas? Something has shifted in Thomas just enough that he comes back to the assembly. And this time, Jesus appears again. Don't miss this, friends, for this is important. Jesus is revealed to Thomas and ultimately to us as we gather as an assembly. Of course, our personal devotions are important. Of course, our faith is personal, but it is never private. This is why the church has always stressed the importance of gathered worship. For it is when we gather together around the word and sacraments that we experience Christ. That is when Christ comes into our midst by the power of the Spirit, just like he did here for the disciples as they met. Our personal devotions are necessary for our growth in Christ, but they are not enough. For we actually know Christ corporately in this body. We meet together and are stirred up by God, breathing out his spirit upon his church and causing us to believe and to have life in his name. Friends, do not be mistaken. The church is not a collection of these canoes that we are all paddling individually, but rather a ship or an ark that we board that carries us along towards salvation. This faith that we share we share corporately as we are all grafted into that one body. And real faith is bigger than doubt. Real faith can actually use doubt to become stronger and more sturdy. This is true, especially here with, quote, doubting Thomas. St. Gregory the Great said this about this passage. It was not an accident that that, that particular disciple was not present. The divine mercy ordained that a doubting disciple should, by feeling in the master the wounds of the flesh, heal in us the wounds of unbelief. The unbelief of Thomas is more profitable to our faith than the belief of the other disciples. For the touch by which he is brought to believe confirms our minds in belief beyond all question. In this way, St. Gregory is actually revealing how Thomas's doubt was vital to the life of the church, how it actually was used to build up the church. I think as we navigate this age of disillusionment and skepticism, we need to keep this story in mind. We need to remember Thomas as we encounter doubt in others and even in our own hearts and stop seeing at all times, doubt as being an enemy of faith. We need to remember that doubt within the community of faith can actually have a constructive function. But key phrase there, within the community of faith. We must show up. We must not wall off our hearts against any and all encounter. In the same interview, as I mentioned earlier, with Jamie Smith about his newest book, he goes on to say that the best place to work out doubt is actually in an institution that has room for it. In some ways, we need the guardrails of showing up for prayer and worship. 
there's a stability of God's presence in the sacraments. And you just sort of bring your doubts to the altar. There's going to be seasons in every Christian pilgrimage where you shouldn't be surprised to walk in that space. Some days I show up at church with my doubts and I'm kind of counting on you to sing for me. Maybe you're here today with many doubts about this whole thing, about Jesus, about the church. I would encourage you to continue to bring those doubts to this space. You don't need to leave them at the door, but please do not fail to come. Do not fail to meet. Do not wall off your heart or think that this faith is merely about your personal confession. Christian faith is inherently a corporate faith. Maybe you're here today and you're afraid to doubt. You've suppressed certain doubts so long they're lying dormant deep inside you. I would encourage you not to be fearful of those things, but rather to bring those as well. This assembly may not have answers to every question, but what it does have is the Spirit of God dwelling in our midst, and those doubts that you carry may actually be the very thing that the Spirit uses to encourage and enlarge the church. Friends, this gospel passage today is taken out of the very end of the book of John. It's John chapter 20, the second to the last chapter in that gospel. But in the very first chapter of this book, we see one of the initial encounters of Christ and his disciples. Jesus is walking around Galilee and sees Philip and says to him, follow me. The text says that after hearing this, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. We have found the Messiah. Nathanael replied in his own tone of doubt, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip replied to him, Come and see. For those asking today, Could this really be the Messiah? Could this really be true? I would echo Philip's words. Come and see. Come and see. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Pennsylvania.